Matthew 15, 29. Matthew 15, 29, who is Jesus, who do you say that he is? It's going to matter as you look at your life. As we go to Matthew chapter 15, verse 29, the Bible says, Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet. He healed them. Somebody say, he healed them. Amen. I want to stop right here and make sure we get this. Jesus healed people, and he still heals. Buddha never healed. Buddhists can't heal. Muhammad never healed. Muslims can't heal. Krishna never even probably existed. Therefore, he never healed, and Hindus cannot heal. Jesus Christ heals, and now in his church, he uses us to pray in his name to see healings. How many of you in this church have experienced a healing miracle either in your life personally or you have verified and seen it in somebody's life? Raise your hand. Look around this church. Miracles. Miracles are still happening today. I remember one time I was playing volleyball at the lake, and, man, I was crushing it. I was doing it, man. I was, like, laying it down. And one time, I, you're like, uh-huh, whatever, Pastor. What's my story? I get to tell it how I remember it, you know? Preachers call it, we're not lying, we're evangelistically speaking. Whenever we talk about how many souls were saved. A hundred were saved. Bro, I didn't even think a hundred were there. Anyways, everybody got saved, including your wife and kids. Yeah, they all got saved. Anyways, so I'm, I'm just laying it down. And one time, serious, I got a spike. I got myself a spike. Boom. And when the guy went to stop it, it went right to his wrist. And instantly, he was like, oh, man, it hurts so bad. This is the strangest miracle I've ever seen happen, but I have to tell the story. I hurt the guy that I needed to pray for the healing, okay? So the ball crushed his wrist, and he is hurt. And I just run over to him, like, feeling bad, like, dude, are you okay? Is everything all right? And he's, he's like, yeah, man, it's not really your fault. I had a bad wrist from a couple months ago. It's not healing right. It's bothering me. I probably shouldn't have come out here. And you could just see it swelling, and it was red. And I said, bro, can I pray for you? I mean, that's the least I can do as a pastor who just hurt you in a volleyball game. Can I pray for you? Can I hear an amen for that? So I go, brother, can I pray for you? And it wasn't a televangelist pray, and I wasn't like, oh, Lord, come on down. I just put my hand over his wrist. I didn't even touch it, dude, because I'd already hurt him. I don't want to hurt him more by like touching and playing with it. I'm not a doctor, okay? So I just put my hand over his wrist, and I said, Jesus, we ask you to heal this guy's wrist right now. Now we pray that you'll take away the pain, stop the swelling. We know that you can, Jesus. We ask it in your name. Amen. And immediately after I said amen, he goes, look, man, my, my wrist is automatically feeling better. You can see it. We're looking at it. He says the swelling is going down. Now, listen, you might say, oh, that's just coinky dink. Maybe it was just going to go down anyways. I made sure before I testified about this miracle to talk to his cousin, to get word. I said, man, you remember when your cousin came to play volleyball? Yeah, yeah, and you heard him, and you prayed for him, and he got better, yeah. I said, listen, I want you to ask him, is his wrist not only feeling better from the time I hurt him, but is his wrist healed? Because when we prayed, he said he felt heat. We could see the swelling go down. The redness was leaving. I want to know, is he healed? Weeks later, the cousin came back to me and said, my cousin said, his wrist is healed. I saw that gentleman one more time in person, I think about six months later, and I said, bro, how is the wrist? And he is like, it has never been better. It never hurt again after that prayer. Let's give it up for Jesus. Come on. You know that's a real testimony because why would a pastor tell you he hurt somebody and had to pray for him to see a genuine miracle? Now, do I see miracles every time I pray? No, not even the disciples saw them every time. So we're not to blame ourselves, but we're to ask God for more faith and to persevere and pray, push, until something happens. Can I hear an amen to that? And somebody's like, well, what if it doesn't happen? Well, what if it does happen? What harm are you, what, what, what harm is in there asking God to heal you? Let's, let's all give it a try for everybody that's sick right now. Say this with me. Jesus, heal me right now because you love me and you have never changed. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
I receive your healing now. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I still need my glasses. But I had faith that I could open my eyes and tell you another testimony. Wouldn't that be crazy? Come on, I would be just like God. I open my eyes and I break these glasses, start dancing on them. Woo! But now let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. What harm did I do for praying for healing? Did I hurt you? Did I hurt myself? No, I ask God to heal me all the time. Learn to pray healing prayers. Even if you don't see any healings but one or two in your whole life. Is it worth the one or two? Was it worth it for that young man on the volleyball court? It was worth it for him. And even if you only see cancer healed once, won't it be worth it for that person that you prayed and they, find, and they got healed? And it's like, man, God did that. And so we trust the Jesus of the Bible to always do what's right. He never wants us to ask if it's his will. So I know sometimes people want to be a little spiritual and be like, well, God, if it's your will, heal me. No, we got to come to him always believing it's his will. But let the mysterious ways of God remain in his world, in heaven, based on his plan. Yes, things can be done differently according to his plan. But I'm not going to try to say if it's his will because he's already told me it's his will. Amen. Whenever I said amen. He already told me he wants to heal me in the Bible. He said, by his stripes I am healed. Isaiah chapter 53 says, by his wounds we were healed. It's a prophecy fulfilled. That's one of the reasons he died on the cross. So I'm not coming to him going, if it's your will, I'm going to go that it is his will because that's all he told us to pray, and then I'm going to leave the rest up to him. Okay, so Jesus came healing people. Now verse 31. It says, the people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seen. And they praised God, the God of Israel. Uh, verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people have already been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. Everybody go, oh. See, Jesus loved them. But what did he do? He preached to them for three days. So Jesus loves you enough to preach to you for three days, and then he'll give you something to eat. So let's just think about it. He's already fed 5,000. This is now going to be the feeding of 4,000. There are some differences. In the feeding of the 5,000, in just the previous verses, it says he had been preaching all day, just one day, and the disciples came to him, and they were like, dude, don't you know they've been with you all day, and, and there's nothing to eat around here? What are you going to do? And the Bible says he rebuked them. He's like, well, if you're so concerned about it, you give them something to eat. And they're like, oh, Jesus, we don't have any food. We can't do this. And then he said, go get me something. And the Bible says he got snacks from a boy that was smart enough to bring some snacks to church. Come on. And they got uh, the five loaves, the two fishes, and he prayed and multiplied it. Here it's different. Jesus has compassion and brings it up to them because he's been preaching three days. So if you want to know when Jesus starts feeling sorry for you, if you've been in church for a long time, it's only after three days. He does not feel sorry for you if you are here till now nighttime, so don't come up to me and be like, stop, don't you know they're hungry? He already knows. We're okay. You can go without a meal. Can I hear an amen? Okay. It's only after three days does God begin to say like, hey, we need to do something about this. So notice the difference. He's now bringing it up, but watch the disciples right when you think they got it. They're going to pass this test. Come on, disciples, do the right thing. Last time you were like messing with Jesus, going, don't you know they're hungry? You know, disciples, get it right this time, but let's see what happens. The disciples answered, where could we get enough food or bread in this place, this remote place to feed such a crowd? Everybody go, womp, womp. The disciples had a chance to get it right, and they get it wrong again. Now, do we relate to the disciples? Yes. Everybody shake their head and go, yes, I relate to the disciples who get it wrong a lot. I relate to them. I have messed up. I don't get it. So now Jesus has to correct them. He has to tell them, guys, don't you remember what I did with the 5,000? How many loaves do you have here? They said seven and a few small fish. So he says, tell them to sit down on the ground. He took the seven uh, loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks and broke them, he gave it to the disciples, so they in turn to the people. So the disciples missed that opportunity. Let's not miss opportunities for God to provide. Here's how we miss it. We come into situations, we freak out, and we act like God's not God anymore. 
We lose our job and we're asking God, God, how am I going to pay my bills? Friends leave us. Oh, God, who's ever going to be with me? You know, uh, things go wrong in our life. Nobody knows the troubles I face. You know, whatever. We, we go through times of suffering with Jesus right with us, the miracle worker right with us, and we pretend we're by ourselves again trying to do the impossible. Let's not do that. Let's mature. Let's learn from the mistakes of the disciples. And everybody here today, covenant between you and God that you will trust him. Now, remember, when you leave here, that scary situation is still going to feel scary. And we're never ready for it. But we must trust God. Yesterday, my wife and I were driving home with our kids from a birthday party, and a Chicago driver, believe it or not, was reckless. Can you guys believe it in here? Actually, there was an inconsiderate, reckless Chicago driver on the road. I know there's only like one in a billion of those, but I happened to be on the opposite side of where he was coming. He was not only outside of his lane. He was about fully in my lane. So I'm driving the 15 passenger van with my kids. He is in my lane coming right at me. Now, I think there was some construction or a bike rider or something, but instead of this dude slowing down and waiting for traffic to go around, in his brilliant mind, he was going to borrow my lane for a little bit and then come back over into his lane. Now, of course, there may be times you have to do that, but he didn't have to do it going 45, 50 miles an hour. I'm talking fast, okay? And y'all looking cool right now. If you would have been in the car, you would have wet your pants because I am basically stopped at traffic, and this dude is fully coming like in my lane right at me. And so what I do, by the grace of God and the angels that were with me that day, is move over, don't hit the car that's next to me because you know how in Chicago they make two lanes out of one lane. You know how they do it, especially at stoplights. So I come over to this guy wheeling the 15-passenger van, moving my van to be at this angle, and then he comes, misses me right here, and then he turns just like that. Oh, my Lord, I have not felt my heart beat like that in a long time. I was, dude, and he was, it was on the driver's side. Okay, it, it, was, it was my time to get ready to meet Jesus, take a trip to the hospital. How many know life is short, people? How many know you're not guaranteed to even make it home today? I mean, we're not guaranteed that. And so what I realized at that moment is that people can mess you up. People who are not uh, doing the right thing, who knows what was in his or her mind. It was so scary. It really messed with my head, and my heart was beating so fast. But I want to tell you that God spared me. That was another kind of miracle. And so what Nancy and I began to talk about is, is similar to this, is why do we freak out in life when things go wrong thinking like we were promised a yellow brick road? I wasn't promised a yellow brick road. My wife and I were in another car accident that we've told you before, and she was in the hospital. It broke her ankle in many places. She had to get multiple surgeries, and my, mom, uh, my wife, a mother of what was it, four at that time? Four was bedridden for what? How many months? Felt like months. Six months. How long were you in bed for? A month. Felt like it was many, many months. Dude, mama could not move from her bed. She had the kind of cast that comes in with drills and the metal stents put in. You know what I'm talking about? When it looks like there's like a little spaceship in your leg. You guys know what I'm talking about? I almost want to show you a picture. And, and the nurse would come and take it out and then clean it, cleaning the drill holes and the stuff in her flesh. It went right into her flesh and then it take it out, clean it, pop it back in, whatever they were doing. Am I making it too much? Don't you be shaking your head now. I was grossed out, whatever it was, whatever it was. They didn't, take it, they didn't unscrew it. As long as I can tell my story, it's my truth. Let me tell my truth. You don't know what they were doing. She was high on all kinds of drugs. My wife was continually on what were they giving you, morphine and all kinds of pills. My wife started telling me, like, she said, I don't like how, because she was getting better. You know, the pain was decreasing. She was like, I don't like how this feels. I'm like, you are high. That's why. Because as, as the pain goes down, you just strictly get high. When you're in pain, you don't feel the high so much because, you know, it's going to where you need it. But when you start getting the pain away, you just get high. My wife was getting high. She was like, I need to get off this supply. Amen. She, got, she had to tone it down a little bit. She's good now. 
So, okay, it's partly my truth and your truth. Okay, somewhere in there is the truth, right? So the Bible says these disciples didn't learn their lesson after the second time. They didn't learn it. We need to learn to trust God in car accidents. Learn to trust God when we get fired. Learn to trust God when our friends leave us. Let's stop freaking out and asking God to do, uh, to ask God to um, explain to us the plan. We don't always need to know the plan, just trusting that there is a plan. Amen? Instead of saying, God, explain it to me, just go, God, what do you want me to do? Just, what do you want me to do? Okay, go, go fill out another application. You got it. Uh, you know, break up with this person and just be single for a while. You got it. I mean, how is he going to take seven loaves and a few fishes and feed upwards of 15,000 people? Only God knows. That's a miracle, but we trust him. So it says they all ate, were satisfied. After the disciples, afterward the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces and were left over. But highlight this section right here where it says, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and they in turn to the people. Everybody say, some things will only come through other disciples. So notice this, some things only come through other disciples. You will not get it on your own. If you were hungry that day, you could not come to Jesus and say, Jesus, give me the bread. Jesus would have told you, no, no, no. If you want bread, go sit down here, and my disciples will give you that bread. Some may say, some things will only come by disciples. Amen. Let's go to the end of the book of Matthew just to check that. Go to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. I will show you three things that Jesus says he will only do through disciples. Three things you will only get through disciples. You can have your personal relationship with God. That's true. I didn't say everything comes through people. Only salvation comes through Jesus. Only your heart being changed comes through Jesus. There's many things that only come through Jesus, but there are some things that will only come through the people in this room or another good church. Let's get there quickly, gentlemen, waiting on you, please. Matthew 28, 19. It says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then give us verse 20, please. Teaching them to obey what? Come on, don't just look at the karaoke screen. They're letting you down today. We love them, but you better get your Bible out. Teaching them to obey what? Everything that I have commanded you. What are three things that only disciples can do for you? Because you can't do it for yourself to serve in Jesus. I just serve Jesus. I'm just going to do it all by myself. Well, then go on with your bad self, but you won't get these three things. Number one, you can't be made a disciple by yourself. He said to the disciples, you go make disciples. You will not be made a disciple by Gabriel the angel. Gabriel the angel is not coming to your house, checking on your family, doing private prayer with you, and helping you get to your issues. Gabriel is not coming to do that. God is sending a disciple to make you a disciple. Do you understand that? You guys go and make disciples disciples. That's the first thing you can't do without, another, without a disciple. The second thing is you can't baptize yourself. You can't like bring yourself to the tub and be like, I baptize myself in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. You can't do that. You need a disciple to baptize you. So you may say, I don't need the church. I don't want the church. Well, you are rebellious. You need to humble yourself. Two things already we've learned you can't do by yourself. You can't make yourself a disciple because you don't know what you don't know. And to you, your stuff don't stink. But to somebody else, they can smell it. Oh, yes, to somebody else, they can smell it. So you need somebody else in your life. They're not your Savior. They're not doing everything. I just said here are some things you need to get from other people. And what's the last thing? To be taught to obey everything Jesus commanded you. He didn't just say, read your Bible and figure it out on your own. He said, be made a disciple, be baptized, and be taught be taught the scriptures. That's why from all the way back into this time, uh, which was around 33 AD to our time, the disciples have been making disciples that have been making disciples. And because of that, people are baptized and taught the things of God. Can I hear an amen? Amen. So let's go back to the passage. Let's see how many were fed and what happened. It says in verse 37, they all ate, were satisfied after the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces they, that were left over. The number of those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. So that's maybe a total of around 14,000, 12,000, 15,000. We don't know exactly. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, 
He went to the boat and went to the vicinity of Magdadon. Magdadon. Magadon. Everybody say Magadon. There we go. Thank you. Now chapter 16, verse 1. Remember in the original, there's no chapters and verses. We're reading it just like a story. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Everybody go, wah, wah. Now the Jewish people, they're missing it again. How many times has he corrected them? How many times has he dealt with them? Now are you getting a picture, especially those of who have, you have been here before. How many are getting a picture of why they're going to crucify him? Because he's not playing their game. They are looking for an opportunity to, to kill him. That's honestly what it is. We're more than halfway through the book. You're now realizing why they're getting so mad. And they test him. And then he passes the test. They test him again. And then he calls them names. And they get upset. And then he test, they test him again. He is continually trying to be put into a trap by these guys, but he's not falling for it. He's already answered this question. When they asked him this, they were maybe asking with genuine motives, which was like, Hey, if you're the Messiah, and the Messiah is greater than Moses, and Moses gave us a sign of splitting the Red Sea, shouldn't you give us a greater sign? And granted, that does make sense. How many get the thinking there? If you're greater than Superman, show us, right? Like, show us you're greater than Moses. Do something even bigger than what Moses did. But what does Jesus explain to them? That the biggest sign they're going to get is him dying and rising from the dead, which they don't get. They think that's stupid. They don't understand the point of that. But how many know God coming in the flesh, dying on the cross for our sins and raising from the dead is way bigger and better than the Red Sea being parted? How many know that's a bigger miracle than manna coming down, frosted flakes every morning from the ground like dew? How many know that's better? That is the best. There's nothing greater than that. But he's now going to add something to this because he's already given this answer before, earlier in Matthew, but he'll add something to it here. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. How many of you have made the mistake in Chicago and tried to predict the weather by what it was like in the morning? Unfortunately, we do not live in this culture where it was more de desert and arid, and they could kind of make a prediction based on what it was like in the morning to what it was like in the evening. How many literally, not even a joke, not even a meme, how many of you have gone through at least two or three seasons in one Chicago day before? I mean, you woke up, and it's freezing, and then it gets hot and sweltering, and then it gets like mild fall in the evening. This is crazy. But back in their day, in their location, they could predict the weather pretty good. They were good at it. And what Jesus is saying is, you guys know how to predict the weather, but you don't know how to predict the signs of the time. Look at it. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Everybody say the signs of the times. Thank you. Write down these two verses. Haggai 2.9 and Malachi 3.1. Haggai 2.9, Malachi 3.1. How many of you in church, without lying, can raise your hand and say, I've actually read those books before? Come on, Haggai, Malachi. Good, good. In those scriptures, they're given a prophecy of Jewish people. Here's the prophecy. Everybody get this. Their second temple is going to be greater than their first temple. First temple is the one that Solomon built, had tons of gold. They say it was upwards, worth of upwards of $70 billion. $70 billion. You know that's a lot of money. But when they had the second temple, it says they were sad. The reason why they were sad is because when the first temple was dedicated... God came down in glory in the cloud of his presence. And it was so powerful that the people couldn't even minister. So the priests, they were knocked out in the glory of God, and it was powerful. But the second temple, God didn't even show up. God didn't even show up. And so they got so discouraged, the prophets had to start coming and encouraging them. And in those two passages I gave you, Haggai 2.9 and Malachi 3.1, this is what God says. This temple is going to have greater glory than the first temple. And here's why it's going to be greater. I'm coming. I will literally come to this temple, and this temple will have greater glory. Stay on the notes for me, please. Greater glory. Somebody say greater glory. So what he is telling them is know the signs of the time. 
because they hadn't experienced the greater glory, and it's been hundreds of years. And here, everybody get this, in the Roman Empire, they were about ready to destroy the Jewish people and their temple. That's what Jesus actually mentions in uh, Matthew 24 when the disciples show him the temple. That's one of his prophecies that we can show the Bible is legit. Is he points to it and he goes, you guys think this temple is great? The whole entire thing's going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left on another. So track with me here. He is saying to these guys, don't you understand the signs of the time? This second temple is probably not going to be here much longer. The Romans, they are coming down on you guys. They're going to mess you up. They're going to disperse you from this land. They are going to hurt you. But you're thinking you got a prophecy coming that the glory is supposed to be greater here than even in Solomon's temple. So don't you see that the time for that prophecy to come about is running short? See, I wonder here. In this church, 2,000 years after the time of Jesus and the destruction of this temple and all the things they went through, I wonder how many of you here are aware of the signs of the time. Do you know how close we are getting to Jesus coming back? Because you can be so blind by keeping up on Snapchat. You can be so blind by your job. You can be so obsessed with fashion and money and education that you don't know that the time for Jesus to fulfill those prophecies before judgment is running out. So we better not look at them with our nose down because we, in this generation, are making that same mistake. He says, guys, you know how to look at the weather and predict a day and what it's going to be like, but you don't know how close the end of the world is for you. The end of your world, the end of this temple, everything you base your life upon is about ready to be destroyed. And that's why he says in verse 4, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Which is what? Jonah was swallowed up by a whale, kept in the belly of that whale three days, spit up. Jesus is going to die, be kept in the heart of the earth three days, and then come up. That's the sign they're going to be given. And then look what the Bible says. Jesus then left them and went away. How many know you got to leave your haters sometimes? How many, how many know sometimes you got to leave your frenemies? How many are thankful for the unfollow button on Facebook? How many are thankful for the block button? Can I hear an Amen. So he just left them. He's like, boom, take it, and dropped it like it was hot, and then left them. How many up until this point, let's just be honest, have felt sorry for the disciples? I have. I mean, they've been rebuked quite a bit, haven't they? They've been called willfully stupid. They've been called uh, midgets or little people of faith. They have been told over and over again that they don't get it. Centurion, a person of the Roman government that was suppressing the Jewish people, one of the bad guys, was actually said to have great faith, and they still haven't gotten that compliment yet. A woman who was a part of a culture that hated the Jewish people and persecuted them for hundreds of years, she was called a dog, yet in her persistence, she did the right thing and was told to have great faith, yet these guys still are not called great faith people. Doesn't that just make you feel sorry for them a little bit? And twice... They mess up the feeding things, and let's see what happens now, if it happens again. Let's watch. Verse 5, when they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Okay, now, we all have forgotten things, haven't we? How many of you have forgotten something before? How many have forgotten your phone? How many have forgotten your keys? How many of you have forgotten your keys in your car with your phone? <laughs> How many then forgot your friend's number or your mom's number so you didn't know who to call? That would be a bad day. My phone's in my car. My keys are in my car. And I don't know who to call because I don't know anybody's number. I forgot. This is a true story. I can tell you my friend's, my best friend's number from when I was eighth grade. I can tell you his phone number right now. I can dial it right now, and I can hit it right now. I don't know my wife's number. That's what technology has done to me. I stopped memorizing numbers after it went into that phone. So serious. I don't, I, right now, I was that person that had my keys and my, and, and my phone locked in the car. I would not know how to call my wife. I, wouldn't, I don't even know my parents' number. I don't, I don't even know whose number I would call. What would I do? Please never let me do that, Lord. I'd be so embarrassed. My, my wife is number one on speed dial, all right? Look at what happens. They forget to take the bread. Not too bad. Let's see what happens. Not, not, not the worst thing that could happen in the world. Now Jesus teaches them, and he says, Be careful, Jesus said. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 7. 
they discussed this among themselves and said, it is because we didn't bring any bread. Come on now, guys. This is not looking good for the home team here. Jesus literally said a parable to them, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. How many have already heard a parable about yeast? How many remember it's in chapters earlier? He said the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who takes yeast and puts it into how many pounds of dough? Who knows that one? 60 pounds of dough, and it works its way all the way through. So what does the yeast mean? Teaching. The kingdom of God is taking good teaching, no matter how little bit you have, and working it through into your life. But what is he now building upon? He's building upon that idea, but the Pharisees' wrong teaching, so he's saying, just a little bit of yeast of their false teachings in your life will blow you up. Now, Jesus expected them to be following along. He expected them to remember what yeast was. He expected them to understand he was talking a parable. But do the disciples get it? No, they don't. Look at what it says. Verse 7, they discussed this among themselves and said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Verse 8, aware of this discussion, their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith. Oh, my goodness. They're called miniature faith people again. Un piquito faith. Some of you are starting to think that this is like a term of endearment. No, it's not. Whenever, it's not like me looking at you going, oh, Dito. No, when you're called little faith, this is like basically you being called a, or a spiritual runt. You are being called a midget, a spiritual midget or a spiritual little person. You of little faith. Why are you talking amongst yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? How many of you have had to talk to your kids like this? Why don't you get this? Hallelujah. I'm so glad God loves us enough to tell us the truth. Oh, I asked you before if you're feeling sorry for them. One of our elders said no because they deserve it, right? They need a good spiritual spanking. But spiritual spanking still hurt. I know some kids need to get spanked. I spank my kids, but how many got turned away when somebody's kids are getting spanked? Even if you're the, even if you're the, ne- uh, the, whatever, the uncle or whatever, you just got to turn away. It hurts, you know? I don't like seeing this happen. Come on, guys. How many know we would be right there, though? How many times have you missed it? God is talking about pineapples, and you're talking about apples. Apples, apples, apples. No, no, no. Pineapples, apples. No, pineapples. So often we hear what we want to hear. They are carnally minded. God is talking about teachings that will change their life and avoiding bad teachings. And they're literally going, dude, you forgot the bread. What are you thinking, Peter? What's going on? Dude, you are a knucklehead. And and Jesus is like, guys, what are you doing? You spiritual runts, as one translation says. It says you uh, runt believers. Haven't you caught on yet? Some of you think I point this out so I can have an excuse to call you these names. That is partly true. You are quick. But there's bigger reason than that. The bigger reason is for us to learn. Jesus keeps it real. And we shouldn't go around just calling names to call names. We do tell our children not to call names. I'm like you as a parent. I don't want my kids walking around calling each other spiritual runts. You know, that would be like being cussed out, like Christian cussed out, you know. You spiritual runt. You know, and then like I know some families here, it's like, don't say the S word, don't say stupid. But then one kid's going to be like, but Jesus called Peter stupid, you know. But here's the thing. We're not walking around calling names out of our anger, unwholesome talk. Adults can use language to describe behavior. How many of you have ever had to, in marriage, describe your wife or your husband's behavior as foolish? Oh, it got quiet in this Presbyterian church. Do I have any Pentecostals? Come on, let's keep it real. Let's keep it. Have you ever had to use those words in your marriage? As beautiful and as submissive and as kind as my wife is, I've had to pull out the foolish word a few times. And she with me, okay? Now, you better be careful how you use that because you, you know, might get yourself in some trouble. And we shouldn't do it out of anger, but describing behavior is natural. How many parents have described behavior like that? Now, if you're a parent or you're married, and you have never described your spouse or your children's behavior with the word foolish, we have a lake out here today we would like to watch you walk on. 
okay? So if you've never been involved in a relationship with your kids or your spouse and you're married and you have kids and you've never used foolish, I want to see you moonwalk on the water today. Because I'm not, I'm not saying it's an excuse to be sinful. God has made us perfect and righteous in him, and we shouldn't make an excuse for sin. I'm just saying there are times we do foolish things, and it needs to be called out, and people who love us should tell us those things. So he's like, guys, this has nothing to do with bread. Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets were gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? I am not talking to you about that. But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood. Everybody go, aha. How many know Matthew's writing this? He's like, then they understood. Yeah, Matthew, you're part of that they. He's like, then they got it. Yeah, they sure did. They sure did got it. They got it after that. Okay, thanks, Matthew. We know you're there. Matthew, you were right there too. You didn't get it. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Isn't it good to read the Bible? Amen. How many are ready for the message? Let's go to verse 13. Here's our message today. Hopefully it won't be as long as the introduction. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Everybody say socially aware. Say it again, socially aware and emotional intelligence. You have to be socially aware and emotionally intelligent to be successful in life. Jesus was not afraid to ask his disciples, who do people out there say I am? If you are afraid of that question, it's because you're insecure. A part of your emotional intelligence in life is to be able to hear what people from the outside think about you. So if you're a boss, you should feel comfortable asking your employees, what do the other employees and customers say about me? If you are a parent, you should feel comfortable asking your children, what do your friends think about me? You feel comfortable because those who are socially ignorant and unaware are some of the hardest people to be friends with. How many have been around some socially unaware people? Like they just don't get it about themselves and they're afraid to take on that information and they're so defensive. Now notice this. When you ask a bunch of people who don't know you really well, who do they think you are, you're probably not going to hear the truth about you. That doesn't mean you have to accept what they say about you. You just have to be mature enough to take what they say about you. That's part of emotional intelligence. Don't be an emotional ignoramus. Be able to hear it even if you don't like it. So that means I should be okay with you telling me what your friends and family and other people who have left this church think about me. Doesn't mean I have to agree with it. I should just be able to take it. Does everybody get that? Because they certainly don't have any clue to who Jesus is. So when you ask people outside of your circle, who do you think I am? Chances are they're going to say the craziest things about you. But you got to take it. And you might learn something about how they think. Learning about how they think will make you more socially intelligent. They replied, some say you're John the Baptist, the dude that just got beheaded. Yeah, some people think you're that guy. Others say you're Elijah. Didn't he live about a 1,000 years ago? Yep, they think you're that. Still others think you're Jeremiah, about the same amount of time, or one of the, one of the prophets. Everybody go, uh. Literally every single answer that these people said about Jesus was as far from the truth as possible. When you look at why they're saying this, there's actually still today the Jewish belief in reincarnation. They believed in reincarnation, and I just heard this the other day from a rabbi teaching right now, really smart guy on other issues, uh, spiritually foolish when it comes to this. He actually thinks 
that your soul can be reincarnated as different people that then on judgment day when you get resurrected will be around and you'll have multiple expressions of your soul that get judged and you'll be able to communicate with. So according to this rabbi, the one soul of Jesus could have been John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, and one of the prophets, and literally on judgment day he could see the different parts of himself. See, people have been crazy long before we've had crazy beliefs in our culture. Does crazy mean right? No. There is nothing taught in the Bible about reincarnation. So when I hear people say things about me, I can take it, but I don't have to agree with it. What I then want to do is know what you, those who are closest to me, say about me. That's what I want to know. What do you say about me? What does my wife say about me? You should ask your best friend, who do you say that I am? Because look what Jesus says. He said, guys, what about you now? Who do you say that I am? Now Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. What is so amazing about this is that Peter doesn't just say he's the Messiah, which could be like a, a Luke Skywalker person or a chosen person. You know, No, he says, you're not just a good hero, a, a figure we can look up to. You're also divine. You're the son of the living God. Why is that? Because if you look in the Old Testament, everything that's attributed to the Messiah has the attributes of God, that the Messiah may look like us, but he's more powerful than us. He's our creator. He's worshiped like God, but he looks like us. Daniel 7 says he sees the Ancient of Days, and then here the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days and gets worshiped with the Ancient of Days. Daniel, an Old Testament monotheist, only worshiping mono one God, said the visions that I saw disturbed me. Because they were beginning to see that the Messiah was going to be the God-man. Paul, uh, Peter answers with the right answer. I hope that you know who your friends are and that your friends know what you think about them and that it's true. Let's go to the next portion right here because finally Peter gets a point on the board. Let's give it up for Peter right now. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. I knew you could always do it. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Finally, disciples, point on the board. Rebukes on the board, still about 10, so about 10 times more rebukes. But finally, our guy Peter came through in the clutch, got a point. He knew who Jesus was. No more rebukes for right now, for right now, right? What I love about this is Jesus says, Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Remember I taught you that there were things God can give you and what man can give you? This is one of those things only God can give you. You can learn about Jesus, but you can only know Jesus by Jesus. I can teach you about Jesus. We could tell you historical facts about Jesus. But you will only know Jesus, know who he is, by meeting Jesus. That can only happen one-on-one. -on -one. The Bible then says something very important here in verse 18, and now this is the great divide between Protestants and Catholics. He said, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is their number one scripture to say Peter, because of his right answer, is called a pope and made in charge of the church. Does it say that there? No, and I'm going to teach you the two words. Peter, in the Greek, is Petras. Everybody say Petras. And excuse my Greek accent, I'm trying my best. Petra, say it again. Petra. Or Petros, Petros, right? Os or As? Os? Everybody say Petros. Petros. Pardon your pastor, I try, okay? Petros. One more time, Petros. Petros. But rock is Petra. Petra. Everybody say Petra. Petra. Now, those of you who speak, a Spanish language or a language from Latin background, when a word, a noun, ends with O-S, is that male or female? That's male. That's the gender of male. That's the same thing in Greek. Petros is a male name. Petra, when a name ends with A, is that gender female or male? Female. Petra is female. So unless Peter became the first transgender disciple of the Bible... What Peter is and the rock are two separate things. That would be like me saying, let's say your name was Bob, because his name was once Simon, now it's changed to Peter, Petros. It would be like me saying, Bob, I'm now going to call you Joseph, and upon Josephina, I'm going to build the church. you got to read the Bible to read the Bible, y'all. Come on. You are Joseph, and on Josephina, I'm going to build the church. 
cannot be the same person. No, you are Petros, and on Petra, I'm going to build my church. What is the Petra, the bride of Christ, based on the confession as Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God? That is the rock he will build upon. Petros is the stone that gets laid upon the rock, but he is not the Petra. Does everybody get that? Now, some people might say, oh, pastor, keep reading, because it says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So they'll say, see, see, Peter gets the keys of the kingdom, and in every generation, the pope has to hand those keys down to another pope so that we can have the power on the earth. Just go two chapters over. Go to Matthew 18, 18. Matthew 18, 18, quickly, please. Do you know that the whole church gets the same power and authority? Not only is there no mention as Peter being the Pope, the idea that what will bind and loose is only regulated towards him is untrue. Look at what Jesus told them. I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Sounds the same, right? Give us the whole passage, two verses up and two verses down, please. I'll show you who he's talking to in this passage. He is talking to, in Matthew 18, the church. So what Peter gets, excuse me, we get. What does it say up here? It says, tell it to the what? Church, if they refuse to listen even to the church. That's why it says, truly I tell you. Who is the you he's talking to? The church. Now keep going. Again, I truly tell you, the church, that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for it, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Do you need a pope? No. Everybody say nope. Do you need a pope? Nope. Is there such thing as a pope? No. The Bible simply says Peter is the first disciple, the first stone that's going to be laid upon the big rock, and the church will be built. One more evidence to give you this proof for your Roman Catholic friends that I know you know and love. Uh, let's go now to 1 Peter chapter 2. Don't you think if Peter was writing to the church, he would tell everybody, hey, guys, I'm the pope. You remember I got the keys. I'm in charge. You know, let me tell you guys about who I am. No, look at 1 Peter. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. He's very clear about his role in the church. 1 Peter chapter 2, I believe it's going to start right around verse 4. Start in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. As you come to him, the living what? The living stone. Who's the big stone? Jesus. What's he building that upon? The Petra, the confession of those who believe in him. Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like spiritual stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Does everybody get that? Exactly what he is, you now are. Keep going. To be a holy what? A holy what? Holy priesthood. Is everybody in the Catholic Church a priest? But is everybody in the Protestant Church a priest? Yes. Why? Because we all have the confession of faith. We're being built upon Christ, and we are a part of his church. The Bible says offering spiritual sacrifices. Every one of you can offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Now watch. makes it even more clear. For in Scripture it says, see, I lay a what? A stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. Is Peter the cornerstone? No, he's just one of many little stones like us being built on Christ and the revelation that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. And the last proof, go to 1 Peter chapter 5. Here's a perfect time for Peter to go, dude, I am the Pope. You guys need to listen to me. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. It says, to the elders among you, I appeal as a what? Fellow elder. How many popes are there at one time? Can you have fellow popes at one time? No, but what did Peter say he was? I'm an elder, and there's other elders around you. I'm a witness of Christ's sufferings, which also will, uh, we will share in the, excuse me, I am a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glories to be revealed, the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock. That's what pastors are. He's basically saying, I'm a pastor just like the rest of you pastors. Did you see anything about a pope here? You can check in the Greek. It's not there. 
What did you hear? Exactly the opposite. All those who confess Jesus as the Messiah, God's chosen one to bring salvation, and that he's the Son of God, that he's Lord, he's equal with the Father, he is God, all of those are now the Petra, the body of Christ, that are laid upon the cornerstone of Jesus as little stones being built up. We are a holy priesthood offering up our spiritual sacrifices to God. Can I hear an amen? Back to the notes quickly in closing. So Peter got a point on the board. He's doing awesome. Verse 20 says, Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is called the messianic secret. Many people wonder, like, why didn't Jesus walk on water all the time? Why didn't he just show up in Rome and talk to the Caesar and be like, Hey, you want me to show you some magic tricks? See, I'm God. Worship me. Guys, get this. Jesus did not come to earth to be worshipped as God. He came as a man to die for sinners. That was the role. And think about it like this. If you know I'm coming over to your house right now after church, what are you going to do? You're going to get there quick and clean it up because you got guests coming over, right? If God came down and said, I'm God, what's everybody going to do? Try to be on their best behavior. He came down as a man to let everybody show who they really were, to let the world show how wicked and nasty we really all are. And so when people in this generation, like, if I just saw God, I would believe in him. No, you wouldn't. You would crucify him because that's what they did in the last generation that he showed up with. And now I'm just like him, and you don't like me either. Okay? You don't crucify somebody you love. So that's why he was like, guys, let's keep this a secret because the more they know, the quicker they're going to try to kill me. And I don't have, uh, I got more things to do right now, and I don't want to, I have more things I have to do, so I don't want to die yet. Let me get these things done in the Father's time, then I'll die. So that's why he was telling them that because as we've seen with the Jews, they are now looking for a reason to kill him. It's done. They're done asking questions to learn. They're just trying to trap him. Let's go to the end in conclusion. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. So he knows what's coming, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Everybody go look out. Dude, I'm just, I don't know if I can read it right now, because Peter about ready to get, get another rebuke. But it's going to go much harder for him. It's like I said, I, I know children got to be spanked. I know Peter needs it, Yuli. I know he needs it, but I feel so bad for him right now. So Jesus says, guys, keep it on the down low because I got to die for you guys. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter, don't do it. Don't do it. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. How many are happy Peter got rebuked, though? How many know if Jesus wouldn't die on the cross, we'd be all going to hell? <laughs> so, Peter, let him rebuke you because this has to happen. Let's put ourselves in Peter's shoes. Why is he so upset about this? He thinks Jesus dying is a bad thing. Most of us think that's a bad thing too. Most of us think people getting crucified is a bad thing. So we can relate to this. But he's missing the prophecies. He's missing the things that he was supposed to know. So God would have been patient with him if he would have like went on the side with Jesus and said, help me understand. But no, he let his pride get in the way. And so at the height of his pride with his rebuke to Jesus, he gets the strongest rebuke you can possibly ever get. And I hope Husbands and wives do not talk to each other like this. He gets called Satan. And I think it would be a great book for him to write, Jesus loved me so much, he called me Satan. Amen. That would be a best-selling book by Peter. Thumbs up right there. Jesus on the side rebuking him, you know, like harsh, Satan, you know, Satanas. Some people think he was possessed. No, he didn't fall on the floor and start foaming at the mouth, twisting his head like exorcist or something. What happened here? It's real simple. He was concerning his mind on merely human things. He was not concerning his mind with the godly things. Now, before we throw stones at him, how many times do we do this? I've seen people in this church get called into ministry, and their Christian parents tell us, their Christian parents tell us, that's dumb. They shouldn't go to Bible college. They're going to have to pay the money. They're going to have to do this. They're not going to be able to make a living. Who should do that? They should go take a job somewhere over here. And I can hear Jesus speaking to those parents. 
Get behind me, Satan. You are not concerning yourselves with the things of God, but the things of the flesh. I can hear it too in this church. You know, I'm going through hard times. I shouldn't have to tithe. I shouldn't have to give offerings. Doesn't God know what I'm going through? I can hear Jesus speaking to greedy people in this church. Get behind me, Satan. I can hear Jesus talking to people in this culture like the ones I see on America's Got Talent. Think about it. You've watched those kind of shows, I'm sure. There's that contestant that comes up, the slow piano music in the background, and it says, you know, oh, Bobby came from a tough background. Let's listen to the story of Bobby. And then it says, you know, Bobby's story, and Bobby's like, I was brought up in a conservative Christian family, and, and homosexuality was looked at as a sin and a disorder. And I tried to come out to my parents, but I was rejected. I was told I was going to hell. And now I've gotten old enough where I can be on my own. And this is my opportunity to sing and to make something of my life. And then the, the curtains come down or up or whatever direction they go. And he's out there. And Howie Mandel's applauding. He sings his song. And then everybody tells him, we support you. What is Jesus saying in the background? Get behind me, Satan. You see, think about it just for a second. Let's be real in case you think I'm taking this too lightly. Is it going to hurt Jesus to go on the cross? Yes. Even as being God in man, he was sweating drips, uh, drops of blood, begging the Father for another way out. This is not going to be easy. It is going to be painful. That is humanly true. Will people with same-sex attractions feel emotional distress in life? Will you, after losing your job, feel stressed to give? Will you, at times, go through emotional human pain? Absolutely. But you're not supposed to mind that. You're supposed to put your mind on the things of God and be like Jesus and say, not my will, but your will be done. That's why as you scroll up the next verse, it says, it says, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Hallelujah. Jesus says, I know it's going to be painful, but it's going to be worth it. There is a purpose in this pain because the pain that you're suffering is because of sin and because of a curse upon this earth. And so what do we say to the LGBTQAI community? We say God knows your pain, but don't try to live for yourself. Deny yourself. Take all your desires, put them on that cross and count them as dead and follow Jesus with everything you have. Why? For whoever wants to save their life, Oprah will lose it. Forever loses their life, Ellen, for Jesus will find it. What good is it, Donald Trump, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus has already set the highest price for your soul. That is his blood. So what cheap thing now will you give in exchange for your soul? And now he just lifts us up to a heavenly perspective to get out of the forest so we can see the trees. He goes, for the Son of Man, he is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what they've done. And truly, I tell you guys, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Guys, you're going to see me crucified. You're going to see me buried, raised again. You're going to see me ascend to heaven. You're going to see the Holy Spirit poured out. You will taste and see the kingdom of God, but you must be willing to lay down your life for this. That's what I'm doing for you, and you have to do it for me. Jesus died so that we might live. Hallelujah. And now in living, whether we die or we live, it's all for Christ. And so we end today knowing who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He's the son of the living God. But now we have to ask ourselves, do we know who we is? Who are we? Who, who be you? I be a child of God. I be living the crucified life. I be carrying my cross. Who are you? What are you doing with your life? Because there's nothing you can do greater than to give it to Jesus and go hard. And on that day, the kingdom of God was revealed to the disciples because they hadn't died yet, those ones that were there on Pentecost. Who's the first one that starts preaching going, I'm willing to go to the cross right with my Savior, Peter? 
So you can be called Satan, but you can still be used. You can still be used even if you've made mistakes, even if you've been disciplined, corrected, rebuked, even if you've messed up and done things in sin or whatever. Jesus is not turning his back on you. Jesus wants you to be in this thing. Just deny yourself. Get over yourself. Stop trying to live for yourself. Deny yourself. Take up that cross and go hard for him, and I'll meet you in the kingdom of God as we see his kingdom come. Amen? Let's give it up for Jesus as we stand up. We love you, Lord. Band and altar workers, would you come, please? Let's close it out in prayer. If you're here today and you feel like a disciple that's missed it a bunch of times, you're not stupid, you're not a fool, but you have done foolish things. I can relate. I've been serving God over 20 years. I've done it probably more than you. If you're here today and you're somebody like that and you want to confess your mistakes, like Peter, you want to go all in and stop trying to figure it out yourself. Just raise up your hands with me and say, I'm all in for you, Jesus.